Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. I have a confession to make. Uh, slightly embarrassing, I guess. But I'm beginning to question my perception of reality. Uh, last week, I saw the American president on television. and I believe that. I believed it was the American president. But he was behaving in such a strange way with strange pieces of paper that I had to blink and rub my eyes and think to myself, is this really happening? Am I imagining it? So to question or perhaps reaffirm or confirm my sense of reality, uh, I called up or uh, invited one of America's, perhaps the world's leading cognitive psychologists, Don Hoffman, who teaches at UC Irvine and is the author of The Case Against Reality, uh, and who is a, a cognitive psychologist who has over the last 20 years been challenging all our senses of reality. So Don, um, am I going crazy? <laughs> well, no. It's, uh, there's a lot going on here. It's not only that our senses have been shaped by natural selection not to show us the truth, but, but just to keep us alive. But they've also, evolution has shaped our rationality, our logic and reason. They're also not in service of the truth. They're in service of certain social functions, like persuading others about what we already believe, affirming the in-groups and the out-groups. So in other words, it's, um, it's not a surprise when we find um, even our leaders using logic and reason, what, what appears to be logic and reason for irrational purposes. The best theories we have right now in evolutionary psychology suggest that the, we evolved logic and reason not in service of the truth, but in service of social persuasion. Yeah, and that's why I'm so intrigued with your theories when it comes to our current state of quote-unquote social or political reality. Again, I don't want to turn this into a political discussion, but at least in my view, the current American president is a child at best. Uh, and at worst is, is something which I won't go into on this show. Um, in terms of your theory of cognitive psychology, if I accept that reality, am I somehow undermining um, my own survival instincts? my own Darwinian um, mechanisms? Do I have to, is it somehow in my interest to deny that reality? The reality of perception or the reality of, of the politics that are going on right now? The reality of the politics, which doesn't seem to be politics, which seems to be, again, to, to use a, a word that's quite technical, uh, virtual reality or it seems like hyperreality, absurdism, surrealism? Well, I, I think that our political system, 
was devised with this kind of thing in mind, right? It's it are the the Constitution sort of understands that we're not necessarily using reason in pursuit of the truth. We're going to have different factions, and if one faction has complete control, then they will dominate. We'll have an authoritarian regime and so forth. So, our system of set of, of you know checks and balances is set up so that when someone really deviates <laughs> strongly, um, there, there will be a check and, and a balance. And so it's, this is one of the biggest stresses I think our system has faced. Uh, it's, it's definitely a, a big, big stress. And what we will see, you know, our democracy is a big, big experiment and democracy takes a lot of work. A lot of people would think it would be much, much easier just to have someone tell us what to do. But I think it's worth the effort to, you know, argue and argue and you know frankly you know given that our logic and reason according to you know evolution by natural selection evolved not in pursuit of the truth it really does help to have countering perspectives from a bunch of different quarters because you know we ourselves can be um self-deceived we there's something called a confirmation bias that's sort of built into us we look for evidence that supports what we already believe. So even you know if people across the aisle seem so strange to you, it's very good to listen, and of course not to accept everything that you hear, but to always challenge your own ideas, your own thoughts, and then you know if you decide on balance that you still want to stick with what you're believing, then of course, absolutely. So so this kind of conversation is not easy, but given our evolutionary psychology, the origins of our logic and reason it's it's essential don what why are we so hungry for reality why do we desire it seek it so aggressively i'm thinking for example of plato's republic the foundational text in the western canon which is a book about um our misperception of reality and of course it's also a political and social book a political and social utopia or perhaps a critique in some ways of that utopia what makes us as humans so hungry for reality? Why do we desire it? Well, one thing that seems to be interesting about our species is that we've evolved to be flexible, to occupy a wide variety of niches. Many species, like certain bacteria, for example, um, have a very narrow range of uh, you know environments that they can live in. We, you know can live at the North Pole, the South Pole, anything in between. We, we're, so the reason we can do that is that we've evolved a, an ability to model, to build internal models in our mind about our environment and to make predictions about what will happen. And we can then decide in the models. So we, we create virtual realities in our imagination and we, we find out, you know, if, if I do this, I might die. If I step over that cliff or if I re go into that cave where that bear was, not a good idea. So I can do these simulations in my mind. And so it's that model building and the fact that our lives depend on getting it right, that would be a nice, interesting uh, evolutionary explanation for why we have this thirst for a model of reality uh, and why we're driven to it. Because the models that we evolved to have we're there to keep us alive in a variety of different environments. So that, that may be a partial explanation for why there's um, an emotional attachment for, for some of us, 
now, you know, I, I have many friends who couldn't care less about models of reality, but, but you know, there are many, many scientists and, and um, literary people and, and explorers of various kinds who are interested in the nature of reality. And, and you know, that evolutionary background, and the fact that we have evolved to build complex models of our environment that our lives depend on could be partially the explanation for why we look for truth and really want it. Don, you're on Lit Hub, which is the world's leading book site for both nonfiction and fiction writers and readers. Do you think that fiction or nonfiction writers have a, a better, shall we say, conceptual platform for making sense of reality? Are, are, are fictional writers better equipped to grasp reality or at least to represent it? Well, both fictional and you know, scientific or non-fictional um, thinkers have certain advantages. The, the scientist tends to be more conservative, more, in some sense, more plotting, and, and, but they build mathematical theories. And often the math will take you where your imagination dare not go. So Einstein, when he wrote down his equation of general relativity, had no idea that the math would say there are black holes. And he didn't like it. But put who, who in their wildest imagination could have come up with black holes, right? Even Einstein couldn't come up with it. It was the mathematics, and, and the mathematics was disbelieved for decades by Einstein and, and other brilliant people. And now we realize black holes are everywhere. So, so there, the scientists have the advantage. On the other hand, the, what we find in many cases that the fiction writers have a real advantage because in some sense, they're not constrained by the conservative rules of science, right? They're not constrained by what we know in the equations that we've got. So their minds can, can, can jump. And then they can, of course, take advantage of these amazing discoveries that the scientists have, right? And then go from there. So there are black holes. What can we do with that in, in imagination? Again, they can leap ahead of the scientists, but then the math slowly catches up and all of a sudden we find out, oh, there are these things about black holes that even the best fiction writers. So I think that there's this wonderful balance between the two. They can both learn from each other and together we can actually uh, improve our imagination as a species. Don, are you a religious man? Uh, I used to be. My father was a, uh, a Protestant fundamentalist minister and I've spent many decades sort of um, extracting myself from, from that and understanding what happened. And so I, I do think that space-time is not fundamental. I think that consciousness beyond space-time can be fundamental and that we can mathematically model it. So my attitude about religion and science is that I think religious traditions have insights that are useful insights insights that perhaps um, current physicalist science has not had, but there's also nonsense. And so it's, it's a matter of having a dialogue where we try to understand each other's traditions, figure out what is the insight that is useful to keep and what is the nonsense. And um, again, because we have this evolutionary tendency to want to um, look for evidence that confirms what we already believe, this confirmation bias, it's very important that we have the dialogue and that we also look to data from experiments. So, so, so what, what doesn't work for me, and I think 
actually doesn't work in practice for religious traditions is dogmatism. Dogmatism will keep you believing the same thing for thousands of years. Many will think that that's a plus. But in fact, if we want to find out where we're wrong, and, and we should always admit right up front that, of course, we're probably wrong. I'll say right up front, I don't think that any current scientific theories are true, including my own. But the thing about the theories that we have right now in science is that they're precise enough that they can tell us, in many cases, where they stop, where they fail, and where we need to go for something further. And that's what I would like in spiritual traditions as well, to take, I think, the genuine insights that are there, try to make them precise enough, they're important enough to make precise, so that we can then try to understand the implications of the beliefs and take them in, in new directions, um, and then understand how the different religious traditions relate and how they relate to current scientific theories. So I would love to have a dialogue between science and religion that's respectful, that looks for the key thing, which is what evidence would prove this idea wrong? That's the key thing. What is set to make our ideas precise and say precisely how we might be shown wrong? Don, you suggested earlier that you don't think we've ever grasped reality. Um, so far at least as a species and that you haven't in terms of your theories. Do you think as a species, we're capable of doing that? Could there conceivably ever be a time in the history of our species, of the human beings, when uh, we will see quote unquote reality, truth, representing a, representation, a, a, a representation of the world that actually conforms to the way it is? I think that it's a legitimate goal of science to try to come up with true theories. As I said, I don't think we've succeeded so far. And even if we did succeed, we couldn't know that we had succeeded because for all we would know, the next experiment would show that our, our theories are wrong. So we are in this position where even if we happen to stumble on the truth, we, we couldn't know it. But there is a deeper part to your question, and that is, is there such a thing as the truth? Uh, I, and I don't think that the notion of truth may be some static pre-existing thing that we're just trying to put our flashlight on and understand. And the reason I say that is, is um, some implications of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And without going into the details, Gödel's theorem basically says that there's no end to mathematical structure. No matter how much you've explored, there's countless more mathematical structures that aren't entailed by what you know, that are yet to be explored. And so that makes me think that the, there is no such thing as the final static truth, that there's more of this exploration process and that you can be more or less true to the structures that we've experienced so far. But it will always and only be partial because there'll be literally unbounded exploration ahead. And so in some sense, there's no ever seeing the final truth, but, the, but we can get evidence from science that what we've seen so far is not in accord with the structures that we've already found. Do you think we may have made a mistake beginning with Plato in terms of even thinking that we should try to grasp truth, that Plato's metaphor of the cave uh, was a, was a, was a brilliant literary device, it was very compelling and intriguing, but was a huge 
scientific or epistemological or philosophical era that we're still we're still trying to get away from it, it it's kind of borrowing another metaphor from the greeks it's um uh, for, for, from from the from uh, for, from the Homeric world, we need to tie ourselves on the ship to avoid being seduced by the by the the, the maidens of truth. That's a that's a great question. Now, you know, most scientists, of course, are thinking that we can try to come to truer theories. And there's a sense in which, if Newton had said, you know, instead of saying f equals m a, he had said f equals m a squared it would be wrong. And if we used F equals MA squared to send rocket ships into space, we would have crashes all the time. But the fact that our theories work doesn't mean that they're true in a deeper sense. If they don't work, clearly they're false. <laughs> in, in, there's some sense in which they're false. If they do work, it doesn't mean that they're true. And so we will always have this tension that you raised, which is, there's something that we're doing right when we get a theory that can send us to Mars successfully. And there's many, many ways that we could have gone wrong. So, but is there this deep notion, a static notion of truth that we're gonna inch our way forward toward? I, I think not, especially in light of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we should just say I can, tell you whatever story I want to tell you, any story is as good as another. I, I want a story that says F equals MA if you're going to send me to the moon. If, you're, if your story is F equals MA squared, I'm not getting on your rocket ship. <laughs> what do you think a, a Plato or a Gödel or a, a Bishop Berkeley would have thought of us now chatting over the internet with you, with your, your fake beach in the background? Would they think that we've gone crazy? <laughs> well, I think Berkeley would have um, been sort of happy with the kinds of discussions we're having because he, he was an anti-physicalist. He didn't think that um, physical objects exist when they're not perceived. He thought that they were nothing but ideas, as he put it, ideas in your mind. And of course, he took it in a direction that, that I'm not taking it, which was, he said, ultimately, a tree exists even when no one on earth perceives it because it's in the mind of God. And so that's how we gave some kind of reality to the trees. But I think that there's another aspect to your question, and that is because of the advances of science, we are doing things like interviewing by Zoom, um, hundreds of miles apart, and having a conversation. That would seem like absolute magic to anybody, even just a century and a half ago. And yet it's not magic. It's understanding and getting good theories about the world around us, um, better than we had before. Um, it doesn't mean that our theories are true, which is very, very interesting. And, and I should say, even the best physicists today, despite all the dramatic successes of physics, are, are saying that there's something fundamentally wrong with the entire framework of physics for the last few centuries. And that is, it's been assumed that space-time is fundamental. That space-time is the fundamental nature of reality. And now the physicists are saying that sacrosanct idea for centuries has to go. Space-time is doomed. Space-time is not fundamental. But so that's both the strength and th that shows you the weakness and the strength of science. On the one hand, we've been after that for centuries. So that's a weakness. We, we had it wrong. It's been a great framework. We've done a lot, but we had it wrong. 
But science is now waking up to, by its own theories, to the fact that, that space-time can't be fundamental. So, so I don't know, Barclay would be, I think he would also be quite happy that physics is now re realizing that space-time isn't fundamental. Not only the objects, but space-time itself. So I think that there would be quite a mixture of surprise and shock. I think Barclay would also have been a bit surprised at the success of physicalist science, right? We have to take our hat off to the success of Newton um, and Einstein's I mean, um, theory of relativity. Our modern standard of living, our ability to do a Zoom interview is due to those theories. And even though at their core they're wrong when they say space-time is fundamental, nevertheless, they had their, their fingers on something right. They had some new step forward. And to understand what that is, if it's not the final truth, what is it that they're getting? They, maybe they're just palpating a part of the elephant. Maybe that's a better metaphor. Instead of seeing the whole truth, they were, were filling a different part of the elephant. Uh, maybe the elephant goes on forever. I think one of the things that Berkeley would be most impressed with is that I'm speaking from Berkeley, which is, I think, named after him. So, uh, so whether or not his theories of the world are right, some actual physical things do reflect a certain kind of reality. Um, Don, you're based, we're both based in California, the heart of technology, of Silicon Valley, of advanced work in, in many scientific fields. The billions of dollars that men like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have made is being poured into space travel. Couple of final questions. Firstly, do you think that's wise, given your understanding of the limitations on human reason? And secondly, where would you like the Silicon Valley billions to go? What area of science do you think is troublingly underrepresented? I don't want you to pitch for these people to give you their money, but, but what are we missing when it comes to science? Are we over-investing in one area and under-investing in another? Great questions. Uh, my own view about space travel is that it's inevitable and our species will do it, and that we should. It's going to be um, very hazardous. Many people have already lost their lives in, in accidents and so forth, but many people lost their lives sailing from Europe to the Americas, and we're glad they did. Uh, at least some of us are, <laughs> are, are glad, glad that they did. Um, and I think that it's inevitable that, that we're going into space. When we go into space, it's going to be very, very difficult. We're not adapted. To live on the moon or Mars or any of these other places is going to be it's going to be a speciation event if we actually get a settlement on Mars and I, I think we will um, the the situation there is very very different from Earth and I think that um, as a result of the different niche our species will evolve into a different species uh, on that planet um, and as we as we wander out into the galaxy if if we're lucky and get to do that. Um, we have essentially unbounded resources. Um, so, so there's that aspect to it. We have. Yeah, you don't worry that we're wandering into a trap that we have, as we have so often in the past, have a, an inflated view of our own powers and significance and that we will bump into some other species that will wipe us out. Uh, well, I think we do have an inflated view of ourselves and, and we will make, fail errors along the way, and there will be disasters like we saw last week uh, in Beirut, all right? We, uh, the big explosion 
in Beirut. Um, what a mess. So we're, we're going to have disasters like that. But, and in terms of encountering alien species, um, we haven't found them yet. We may be looking in the wrong place. I, I view space-time as merely our virtual reality headset. And we've only been looking inside of our headset for the aliens. It's much like um, ants not being aware of you as you come with a, a can of ray. They're looking in the wrong place. If we're just looking in space-time for the aliens, we, we may be looking in the wrong place. If we get a science that lets us actually look beyond space-time and start to build models of, of what's beyond space-time, uh, what I'm working on is a model in which um, what's behind space-time is an infinite network of conscious agents. Talk about aliens. There's a countless number of quote-unquote aliens in the model that I'm working. The way we see those aliens is through an interface that makes them look like objects, like tables and chairs and cups and forks and this, our dumbed down species specific interface is the way that we see those aliens. So they're all around us, but we only see them in terms of icons like sun and moon and, and cars and so forth. That's how we see them. A very few of those aliens, we get to understand them as conscious entities. When I talk with another person, my interface actually gives me a portal into the consciousness. With a cat, the portal is worse. With a rat, it's worse. With an ant, it's almost gone. By the time we get to a rock, our interface is just no longer giving us an insight into the consciousnesses that we're actually interacting with. So, so I think the aliens are out there if, if the model of consciousness that I'm working on is, is, is correct. And there's an inf a, a countless variety of, of these aliens and they may not all be friendly. <laughs> I, I may, I'm not going to make any jokes about the American president being that Manchurian candidate alien. Uh, but finally, just my, my second part of my question, Don, in all seriousness, where should the money be going where it isn't at the moment in terms of scientific research? Clearly, you're doing some great work. I'm assuming people are writing new checks. But what, what areas of science worry you because they're not getting enough support? Well, one that we're facing right now is with this pandemic is a clear systemic failure, not only in the United States, but around the world. With de we're not prepared for this. And we know that the next time around could be far worse. This is bad. COVID is bad, but it's not got a high fatality rate. But if we have the transmissibility, if we get the next pandemic is the transmissibility of COVID, and the deadliness of Ebola, um, the kinds of systemic failures that we have right now will not be acceptable. We will, it, it could be an extinction event for us. And so I think money being spent to, to understand and prepare for that and putting us aside many tens or hundreds of billions of dollars worldwide to have pandemic response teams ready at the go. That's, that's one thing I would say for our species survival. My own view as well, there are many other projects that I would love to go after. I, I think um, high energy physics, right? The, the Large Hadron Collider has made some brilliant discoveries. We need to, if I was in charge, I would be going after um, colliders that were many, many orders of magnitude or, or orders of magnitude. I mean, we, technology can't do many right now, but orders of magnitude, one or two if we could, beyond where we are because that's how we're going to discover new things. There's good reason to believe that 
if we could get better colliders, we might discover these supersymmetric particles. We'll see. It, it, it could be that we live in a multiverse and there's no more particles to discover, but we need to settle that. What, what, what is it that, that's going on there? So that would be another one. And then, of course, I'm very interested in consciousness and its relationship to um, the physical world. So, so spending time understanding consciousness, which is you know, essential to who we are. We are, we believe, conscious beings. Although many of my colleagues, I will be in a debate in a month with a, a brilliant colleague who will say that consciousness, the, the idea of phenomenal consciousness, that we have the experience of the taste of chocolate as a real consciousness, that that's completely an illusion. So there's this theory called illusionism that says, no, we, we aren't fundamentally um, phenomenal beings with phenomenal experiences. We're just physical systems. So, so efforts to really tie that down. That's the biggest question we have about ourselves. What kind of creatures are we? Is our consciousness an illusion or is it an essential thing to who we are? Wow. These are all great questions. We'll have to back, have you back on the show. I'd actually like to talk to you for a full 30 minutes on, on quantum computing as well. Everyone, of course, should read your new book, uh, Don Hoffman, The Case Against Reality, How Evolution uh, Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. Uh, and you're stuck, if that's the right word, given the beautiful beach in your background. You're stuck in Southern California, Don. I'm in Bishop Berkeley land in Northern California. What else should people be reading in addition to your case against reality to help them make sense of their own particular realities in the strange, surreal, tragic, troubling summer of 2020? I would recommend any book by Steven Pinker. In particular, how the mind works. If you want to understand some of the best ideas that science has about what makes humans tick, what makes us think and believe and perceive the way we, we do, uh, Pinker is an excellent introduction to that. It, how the mind works, the better angels of our nature. And if you're interested in life and the struggle that science has right now in understanding the origin of life, there's no better book than Paul Davies' The Demon in the Machine. Great book. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.